Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Sadler, and I'm the Senior Research Fellow at Heritage Foundation, responsible for naval warfare issues. I'm joined by two esteemed colleagues today to discuss Navy's role in great power competition with a focus on the military economic nexus. This is a timely topic given Chinese increasingly bellicose rhetoric and coercive naval behavior in the South China Sea, backed by accelerating investments in the so-called maritime Silk Road. Also within the past month, Russia recently gained rights to a new naval base in Sudan, both marking significant increases in investment and military commercial presence along vital shipping lanes, potentially influencing key allies and partners. Our discussion also comes on the heels of yesterday's release of the Navy's future naval force study that provides a 30-year plan for the Navy's future growth to a fleet of upwards of 546 manned and unmanned ships by 2045. Thank you for joining us today, and please do, do use the features on your screen to pose questions to the panel as well as respond to several survey questions along the way. Following opening comments by both panelists, taking from your input via the chat boxes on your screen, I will then pose questions to the panel. But before we kick things off, I'll pose a survey question to the audience now. You should see a screen pop up asking, what is today's most urgent task for the US Navy and gray power competition? A, war fighting preparation. B, building capacity and interoperability with partner navies. C, contesting China and Russia gray zone activities, or D, something else. Before continuing, I'll give you a moment to respond and then show you the results. And there are the results. It looks like a pretty close split between building capacity with our partner navies and contesting the gray zone operations. Thank you, Catherine. We'll go back to video. We'll come back to that question at the end of the discussion. But first, let me introduce uh, my two colleagues who will be joining me. They are well-placed to discuss how these activities by China and Russia impact our nation and Navy. Dr. Gresh has traveled extensively and written most recently on the geoeconomics behind China's and Russia's maritime activities across the Indo-Asia Pacific in his book, To Rule Eurasia's Waves. Dr. Gresh is currently a professor of international security studies at the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs here in Washington, DC. As a government employee, I must also stress that his views expressed today our personal opinions and do not represent the official policy of the Department of Defense nor National Defense University. Dr. Weitz has firsthand experience in the maritime business world, advising entrepreneurs and startups, and as president of the Institute for Global Maritime Studies, seeking practical solutions to global maritime challenges. And he has written on these issues for the New York Times, the Christian Science Monitor, as well as the Straits Times of Singapore, among others. He is also a professor and director of the Maritime Studies Program at Tufts University. And now, onto the show. Dr. Gresh, over to you. Brent, thanks very much. It's a, it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting us today. I want to kickstart my remarks uh, thinking about this, you know, this notion of geoeconomics. So we think about geoeconomics, it's very much economic statecraft or the use of economic means to pursue foreign policy goals. And within that, I think there's a real role for the Navy to play. 
if you think about you know the whole spectrum of tools in the toolbox three in particular really come to mind when thinking about the u.s navy's operations forward-thinking strategy the first being investment policy and specifically within this the role of basing where we are placed around the globe the second has to do with the cyber sphere uh, submarine cables that line the ocean's floors around the globe that connect us um, every country around the world and the third has to do with aid so the first point on investment policy the challenge i think for the United States Navy for the United States writ large is dealing with when it comes to China specifically, how we see, you know, as they increasingly grow this global port access, uh, you know, the first base in Djibouti, uh, having these access nodes and how this can then spill over into dual use capabilities. And it started with Djibouti uh, many years ago, of course, being involved in counter piracy operations and then spilling over into what they established now today uh, with their first overseas base. And you saw it too, you know, in another case where continue to watch out for in Perez, Greece, for example. I had the opportunity uh, to travel there last fall and to see, you know, currently it's it's a shipping port and they've done, you know, the Chinese in particular, Costco shipping has done a really excellent job of, uh, you know, making it a much stronger, more efficient regional port. port. But as, port, as pointed out to me, the possibility for in the winter months, for example, of having uh, the cruise ship terminal also host or be a place where warships can come. So I think that the Chinese are being very smart about using the economics first or the geoeconomics first to then move in uh, a security element. And it makes sense, right, that any country wants to defend and secure their interests. But I think for the United States perspective, again, as someone who studied a lot of base politics, and you look at the latest uh, base structure report uh, put out in 2018, I think is the latest one, where it says that the United States has approximately 500 or 512 main operating bases around the world. And so I think moving forward, especially in a financially constrained environment, the United States is going to have to think about where bases are placed. And that thus you know, feeds into the conversation. We know the news coming out in the last couple of weeks about uh, you know, dividing the seventh fleet, creating, or not necessarily dividing, but moving or creating a first fleet uh, that would borrow potentially from the third and the seventh fleets. It remains to be seen if that'll happen. But I think this is part of the conversation moving forward that the United States will very much have to engage in. The second one, cybersphere. As few people greatly appreciate, there are only approximately 200 submarine cables that line the ocean floors that connect us globally. 95% of all the information uh, that we receive goes through these submarine cable networks. Only about 5% goes through satellite. And if you think in a place again like Djibouti, a small, tiny nation that has an estimated seven or eight cables that come up through and enter into Djibouti and route to the rest of Africa, like a lot of other elements in this larger geoeconomic competition. So I think for the US Navy to think more about how A, securing just the, securing the infrastructure, but also understanding and supporting when lines are cut or understanding what's going on 
at this you know the subsurface level to really secure and focus on these 200 lines is pretty remarkable to think about and furthermore the chinese have been very smart about uh they've laid this peace uh peace cable which stands for the pakistan east africa connect to europe cable or what's called the c me we cable which is southeast asia southeast asia the middle east western europe running these resilient lines uh to further connect in this you know worst case scenario where other internet cables are going out so that's i think a second important element and the third one has to do with aid and i think the navy certainly could play a very important role in this on the softer side through naval diplomatic means. And I think one, you know, especially coming from NDU, certainly I greatly appreciate the international exchange programs, sending over officers um, through education and training. I also think it would, you know, benefit what we saw, you know, over the past decade, the AFPAC hands program, uh, but also thinking about doing an Indo-PACOM hands program or a China hands program as a way to really invest in the knowledge capital of the U.S. Navy. But on top of that, you know, the continuation of ship visits, intelligence sharing, all these elements, you know, fall into this larger aid category. And I think something very much that the U.S. Navy can think further about moving forward into the next administration. With that, back to you, Brent, and I look forward to uh, the conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gresh. Uh, before we proceed on, I've got a second survey question. Uh, Catherine, if you could tee it up, you should see it pop up on your screen momentarily. There it is. Can or should the U.S. Navy play a more active role in a comprehensive geoeconomic strategy in great power competition? A, yes, B, no, or C, not sure. Uh, overwhelmingly, it looks like uh, the survey, <laughs> the consensus is yes with the next group being a not sure. Ooh. Now, before we continue on to the next discussion, discussing the panel member, uh, Dr. Weitz, if you can join me on screen, I'll turn it over to you for your opening comments. Great, uh, thank you, Brent. And uh, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for putting this on. I uh, wanted to also uh, give a couple shout outs, one to the US-Japan Leadership Program, uh, where I met Brent and uh, Jeffrey and I have both participated and uh, also to the Fletcher School's PhD program, which I'm a product of, and so is uh, Dr. Gresh. So uh, it is an honor to be here, and I'm gonna focus my comments on the commercial side, uh, the global supply chains, commercial diplomacy, and then as well, and then uh, non-state threats to security and how there might be potential areas where great power competition can be enhanced while we're also tackling that latter threat. So start off with, with global supply chain. So COVID-19 put a pause on global trade flows uh, to the extent that we haven't seen since World War II. And it uncovered many vulnerabilities from private supply chains that you wouldn't normally know about. And so uh, I think that has uh, gotten the attention not only of policymakers in Washington, but the general population, which I view as an opportunity for the Navy to uh, demonstrate why as it secures our global sea lanes, things that we took for granted before 2020, uh, the stability of global supply chains, we need to think about. And when we think about recapitalizing the US Navy, there are many strategic reasons for doing that. And so uh, the, the, some of the vulnerabilities uncovered, things like uh, pharmaceutical drug sh shortages, uh, PPE, automobile parts, 
Some of that will be, I think, in this upcoming period, tackled by some strategic reshoring of industries. Um, and it'll be interesting to see in Washington how we take that awareness and also look at how we build out our shipbuilding capability in the United States. Uh, before I move on to commercial diplomacy in general, I'll make one last point, which I think global changes in the international order tend to happen in waves. So for example, shortly after World War II from 1945 to 1949, we saw things like the formation of NATO, the formation of the United Nations, the, uh, the efforts to liberalize global trade, the Marshall Plan, a lot of changes in a very rapid period. Um, we also saw domestic policymaking changes like the Truman Doctrine. I suspect that 2020 to 2024 will be a similar situation. Right now we face a multipolar world, but different from last time we had a truly multipolar world before World War II, most of the major great powers are either nuclear powers or nuclear capable like Japan is, could easily become nuclear capable, so is Germany. Um, we also have rapidly changing technologies that are disrupting the status quo of naval power, things like missile technology, autonomous vehicles, aerial, surface, and subsurface. And then we have global challenges like the melting Arctic sea ice that provide new areas where we need to think about how we have a presence. So essentially the, the key takeaway of that first point is uh, there, there's lots of change in the world and that presents both challenges and opportunities for the Navy. Now let's look at commercial diplomacy. Uh, uh, Dr. Gresh talked a lot about this and I, I would just add the following. The PRC, given its governance nature, has uh, one advantage in that it's a little bit more coordinated than we are in, uh, in the United States as well as with our allies. So for example, let's look at their Belt and Road Initiative as well as their Polar Silk Road Initiative. There's essentially a government mandate that this is an important area of national investment that then is a clue to their state-owned enterprises to move into there and do infrastructure investments, not with an official state guarantee, but with certainly support. And then they have a massive amount of sovereign wealth funds and that those then follow. So that's something that we see a highly coordinated effort for infrastructure investment and commercial diplomacy that's coordinated with their foreign ministry, defense ministry, and that's something we need to be aware of and think about how we counter that with the United States and its allies. Uh, and then let's talk about piracy. So piracy is one of uh, many non-state armed group threats uh, to the global shipping industry. Um, and I, I'm going to I'm going to suggest that investments to shore up the United States position in great power competition can have a double benefit of doing that while also having a presence to uh, combat these transnational threats. So, for example. Uh, a, a lot of piracy has happened historically over the in recent history around the Horn of Africa. Uh, that the Red Sea is also a zone of competition now with Russia signing a long-term basing agreement with for Port Sudan and all of the different powers, including China, with bases in Djibouti. So a stronger U.S. Uh, sea services presence there can help counter that, as well as the piracy threats that have historically emanated out of Somalia, but may may come out of Yemen. Um, and uh, that same situation applies for the Strait of Hormuz, for Malacca Strait, uh, Gulf of Guinea, uh, uh, near Nigeria. So uh, the last two points I wanna make uh, to help uh, trigger some interesting conversation is, 
In addition to more naval assets, I also think the United States would benefit greatly from more Coast Guard assets. Uh, Andrew Erickson at the Naval War College has written about China's three maritime uh, groupings, their, their, their Navy, the PLA Navy, uh, the Chinese Coast Guard, and their maritime militia. Uh, and to counter that, especially their growing Coast Guard, which is now the world's largest by number of ships, I think we need a larger US Coast Guard. And you can see that Japan's investing in its Coast Guard. So that's something for us to think about. Um, and I also think we should think about the possibilities of thinking differently in this financially constrained post-COVID environment. How can we get more boats out there for lower cost? And one idea would be a, a modern PT boat. And this would be both uh, good for the US Navy from a distributed lethality perspective, as well as the US Marine Corps for amphibious operations. So with that, I'll stop talking. I uh, look forward to the conversation uh, and, and thanks again for having me. Thank you very much. And I've got one more uh, survey question. Uh, Catherine, if you can go ahead and queue it up, you shall see it pop on the screen. And that question is, where is Navy's presence most urgently needed today? And in the context of our discussion today, first would be the North Atlantic and the Arctic, Eastern Mediterranean and Black Sea, or South China Sea, or Northeast Asia, considering East China Sea and Sea of Japan. And then finally, the Indian Ocean region writ large. So not too unsurprising given recent events, South China Sea is the place for the Navy to be with Northeast Asia as a close uh, second, or not well, slightly distant second. But uh, definitely I would read into that as a focus in on China. Um, I think now we're going to shift over into uh, a moderated discussion. If I could ask both Dr. Gresh and Dr. Weitz to join me on screen, I'll go ahead and pose a few questions to the group. Uh, the first question is actually for you, uh, Dr. Gresh, uh, and it is, here's the question. And, and again, I appreciate the audience. I've actually tried to consolidate many of your comments as this has been going, but it's a bit of deluge. So don't take offense if I don't get to yours specifically, but I'm weaving them together. So for you, uh, Dr. Gresh, how can Navy contest the economic effects of China's maritime strategy? Uh, in your book, you give several good examples and anecdotal evidence of this. Uh, could you provide us some uh, further insights on this? Yeah, I think it, it's a great question, and I and I think one of and we've we've talked about this too, Brent. Is you know, there's a lot of discussion about supporting partners and allies, right? And, and but I think we need to kind of push that further because what does that mean exactly? And obviously, I've referred to in the book and in the piece I just wrote uh, this past week. Uh, looking at the Malabar exercise, right, which is pretty significant in the sense that for the first time since 2007, uh, Australia was included, Japan was, uh, you know, included as a permanent member in 2015, the United States always being a member. Th this is, you know, a wonderful show of force, but I also, as I also point out, this is in juxtaposition to what China and Russian, Russia have been doing in their joint sea exercises taking place in the far western periphery uh, of Eurasia and Western Europe, in the Baltic Sea in 2017, in the Mediterranean in 2015, as well as other important exercises uh, in East Asia. So I think the more the United States can do, or the Navy specifically, uh, of building partner capacity, I think there's a huge spillover effect that we can see in terms of generating greater political goodwill 
for then other instruments of power that the U.S. government has at its disposal. So I think, and again, it gets back to my initial comments about the great importance of education, of training programs, of really reaching out to smaller actors like, you know, currently right now at NDU, I have, you know, a slew of different uh, countries represented, uh, you know, from places like the Maldives or the Seychelles or Mauritius. Uh, you know, these critical countries, although small, uh, but, you know, when you look at maps of the Indian Ocean, the shipping lanes go traverse right through the Maldives. Uh, so th these sorts of initiatives, I think, are going to be critical moving forward. Over to you. No, I appreciate that. I, I really enjoyed also in your book where you talked about firsthand uh, your experiences in Djibouti. And, and another friend of all of ours, uh, who's now the amb Japanese ambassador in Djibouti, just posted a photograph of a U.S. Navy ship, a Japanese self-defense, maritime self-defense ship, as well as a Chinese Liberation uh, Navy ship pulling into the port of Djibouti from what looks like his office. So exciting things in Djibouti, a place where the economics and the military all are coming together. And, and Rocky, I'm getting a lot of really good questions about your comment on the Coast Guard. Uh, so the question I want to kind of pivot over to you, and also a lot of interesting remarks and suggestions about uh, World War II histories, I think most of it is centered on the Solomon Islands and our PT boats, the designs and the employment of those, uh, mostly in a military context. Uh, but I would like to kind of pivot to you and, and get, dig a little bit more on China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, specifically its Maritime Silk Road. Could you maybe give us a little, expand a little bit more on how this differs from a normal economic or a uh, trade policy? And if you've got any good examples in the maritime that you can maybe kind of dig a little deeper in on for us. Sure, I'm happy to. So uh, so the the global shipping industry is, is one of those where lots of international investment happens. So for example, uh, Singapore is a major investor in, in global port operations worldwide. Uh, so is Dubai. Um, and so what's different from those commercial relationships versus the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, kind of the... Uh, the either uh, direct or or indirect expectations for uh, for other um, other other expectations from whoever is receiving the the investment. And so uh, I find the Belt and Road Initiative, and the same for the Polar Silk Road, which is up up in the north the northern uh, sea routes, mostly looking to build infrastructure to to um, to extract Russian natural resources down to China. Uh, that those there, there's significant government backing, either overt subsidies or or unofficial subsidies, and that that um, that provides more diplomatic uh, benefit to China than you would say get from a from a Singaporean investment in a port. Well, thank you very much. I'm, and a few more questions are kind of coming in. Uh, and before I pivot on to that and capture it. Um, I would want to draw the audience attention to the Build Act, which was passed a couple of years ago, which actually expanded the amount of uh, risk that uh, could be put into uh, political securities for U.S. businesses wanting to uh, invest overseas. Uh, we can come back to that. Maybe your reactions to that. It, it, to date, my impression is that's a latent capability that hasn't been utilized in, in this kind of uh, dynamic, in the maritime and in great power competition even though the mandate in 2018 when the bill was passed, it seemed to point in that direction. Um, so for both of you, with that, with that already in the back of your mind, uh, 
the question was posed to several different uh, audience members. What activities could, would, or should the Navy do? You know, exercises being one. Uh, and I know, Dr. Gresh, you gave some good examples uh, uh, on in, in, a, in a macro level, but I'm at the ship level. So it's for what could the Navy do that would be beneficial? Uh, something comes to mind like port visits as an economic tool, um, or the timing of the location of exercises, which could either entice or scare away uh, potential investors in, 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 a, in a location. Uh, over to you. I don't know which one of you would like to go first, but uh, maybe over to you uh, first, uh, uh, Dr. Gresh. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. It's a great question, and I'll use I'll use actually an example of what the PRC did. When, when they conducted their Joint Sea Exercise again, 2017 in the Baltic for the first time, what did they do thereafter? They took a, a grand tour of Western Europe. And it was significant to see the photos of the PLA, um, the planned ships in London for the first time. And so I think to your point about, you know, the, the soft power nature, the, the, the spillover effect from a naval diplomatic visit, and it doesn't need to be enormous ships. Again, we're talking, most of these nations, uh, you know, have small navies, but I think just the significant presence of the U.S. Navy has incredible, you know, power in its own right. And I think, you know, I hearken back, I was reading up and seeing the, the proposed change to now, which will be called, I guess, the Atlantic Fleet. Um, and, and, you know, it harkens back to what Teddy Roosevelt did, 1907, this deploying the Great White Fleet around the, around the world to show that, we, we are almighty, we are powerful. And so I think this might be something to think about. And I think part of the challenge for, for any, anybody in the US military are the same issues. And we see this front and, front and center when it comes to the Indian Ocean, right? Of seeing the scene between CENTCOM and Indo-PACOM. And again, the impetus behind wanting to figure out a way to kind of, you know, with the fleet being overstretched, where can we think about reconfiguring our basing structure so that we can really have more of a seamless trajectory? And I think, again, it gets at how, hey, send a fleet around the world to Europe, to some of these smaller nations, you know, for the Great White Fleet, it visited 20 different ports over 14 months of saying, hey, we're here. We haven't forgotten about you. You are a valued partner or ally. I think it go a long way. Uh just one interject it also the statement of uh capacity and size matters and, and we'll come back to i'll come back to that but first over to you uh, dr white so for your comment yeah thank you thank you brett I, I i agree with what jeffrey said i think the power of naval diplomacy is very is is uh is well known and we have 120 years of history there I mean, longer if you include other nations of course even our uss constitution did that uh back in the 1840s uh the uh, here's a here's an interesting idea. I think that in 2020, in many ways, China overplayed its hand. The border dispute in the Himalayas with India, the uh, the tensions with Vietnam, uh, and and the, its its actions in Hong Kong have made a lot of its neighbors nervous. When you look at the U.S. Navy and its allies and partners, it's the most formidable force in the world. And one thing that I think the new administration could really look at is rather than us as the Navy, US Navy or US Coast Guard, our sea services out there 
try to do um, uh, global port visits. What if we had, rather than just exercises with the Japanese, Indians, Australians, NATO allies, what if we had a multi multinational, uh, a set of multinational cruises where, just like what Jeffrey was saying, wow, look, there's a, a, a PRC Navy vessel in London. Look, there's a bunch of NATO countries visiting Vietnam at the same time that the US Navy in Japan is there. That's a pretty powerful statement. Um, and I think that's something that is an underutilized opportunity. Well, thank you very much. I kind of want to push a little bit more with both of you. Uh, there's some more comments coming in on the uh, the small boats that, and how how actually those would be employed. I want to come back to, but I want to push a little bit further on the economic side of that. Um, uh, so, Dr. White, from your experience, and you've been in the business where you've looked at uh, entrepreneur, you know, opportunities for investing yourself. Is there a is there a situation where a Navy presence could have a chilling effect on the economics? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think it would have to be coordinated with other efforts. Um, and uh, I am eager to give some thoughts on the uh, on the small boat piece. So I'll just throw out a few things. Um, I think that uh, given the given the rapid uh, evolutions of anti-ship missiles, and uh, the ability of what would a modern PT boat would be very stealthy with some kind of uh, plastic coating, composite coating, uh, that, that having, say, 200 of those uh, with a marine detail and some of the, uh, the, the existing um, anti-ship missiles that we have would be a cost-effective way of really putting, especially the PRC, back on their heels um, and those, uh, so I think there's all kinds of interesting opportunities. One commercial aspect of that is um, uh, there are uh, U.S. companies. There's a company, uh, Hamilton, um, down in Texas, that's looking at uh, supporting the offshore oil industry with a patrol boat. It would be a dual use. And this would be a new U.S. shipyard, et cetera. And I think that uh, if we can think creatively in the next four years, as we're in this period post-COVID, how do we get more with less? How do we leverage the fact that we have actually a lot of shipbuilders in the Gulf region from Texas to Louisiana that serve the offshore oil industry could potentially really build out our shipbuilding capability in addition to the existing shipbuilders uh, and particularly for these small boats. Um, I think that those are sorts of things that we need to start having those kind of creative conversations as a country. So anyway, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But I, I think it's a really interesting idea. Before I weigh in, uh, Dr. Gresh, did you have anything to add to that? So I think, you know, I, I, I agree with Rocky. And I think another thing to think about, in addition to just ships, and we talk a lot about this, and that is really just the technology and, and specifically anti-access aerial denial and, and there's a lot in the press and a lot of studies on the south china sea for example but i think you know moving over back to the indian ocean again you know when i when i visited india and sri lanka uh, there's a lot of discussion too about the real concern uh, when it comes to Pakistan and or Sino-Pakistani relations, uh, you know, are the are the Chinese speculation, of course, uh, but what's going on there? Are they are they building up the A2AD capabilities? Uh, what is India doing in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands? So I think there there are ways to to be to move beyond again just ship platforms to see other ways that 
um, you know, various partners and allies can, can benefit from the technological capabilities that we have and, and transferring to these various nations is also something to think about. Thank you. I'm going to make, I'm going to weigh in a little bit myself and uh, try and pull in a few of the comments and responses that I'm seeing over on the chat line. Uh, so the number one challenge for, for the Navy, uh, it, because of our competitors, Russia and China do have, they're taking advantage of this seam that we've addressed. The Navy's got to find a way to compete both in the day-to-day -day and the peacetime. This is the gray zone, which the, the first survey question, I think this crowd definitely gets. Uh, but at the same time, it's just as critical. It's not a it's not a one to end. Do this first, then this. With any money left over, ships left over, uh, a war fighting. So the Navy has to be built, designed, and structured to do both. It has to have the capacity for both, um, which we haven't talked about yet. And and I'm going to get forewarn both of you guys. Uh, your thoughts on the idea of a first fleet? Uh, it sounds like the concept would be based in. Southeast Asia, perhaps it's that's an open debate. Uh, talk with many of the folks in the region, but the focus will be in the Indian Ocean and South uh, China Sea. Uh, we haven't really talked about that. Uh, the role for these smaller vessels and and, and training kind of comes to mind. Uh, but I do want to touch on scale and when the the, uh, the example given about the Great White Fleet, uh, size does matter, uh, but numbers matter too. Um, you think of a swarm, a lot of these smaller boats in a swarm. But from a defense attache's perspective, trying to actualize this from my own personal experience in Southeast Asia, uh, just for our audience's background, when an aircraft carrier pulls into port, it has about upwards of near 5,000 sailors that come in. And usually it's preceded by advanced teams and, and others. So it, it's felt. And even in large metropolitan areas where these some of these deep water ports are, it's a presence that's felt. And it's a presence not just felt militarily, but also economically uh, at the local small business leaders. And depending on the host country's politics and government structure, that can actually have a very significant impact, good or bad. So the embassies are always very tied in. But just that a ship like that, when it goes to port for on average about five days, you're talking an injection into the economy of about two million US dollars. And that actually opens doors. It certainly opened a lot of doors and got things done uh, when I was in, when I was as the defense attache overseas. Uh, so I think that's an example. It, we talk a lot about the value of port visits of showing the flag, but I would say don't underestimate showing the dollar uh, as well. It's actually both. Uh, and increasingly in many of these partners countries, you have to do both. So with that, I kind of want to turn that with that in mind, doing both, your thoughts and reactions to the first fleet uh, that was put forward by the Secretary of the Navy in just the recent past? I can take a stab. Um, you know, I think I appreciate the trying to think strategically, more innovatively about how the fleet kind of restructures itself amidst great power competition. That said, and I know Brent, Rocky, you know, you, you both spent significant amounts of time in Southeast Asia. Um, I was in Singapore last year and kind of one of the initial takeaways was certainly the United States has access, but it's on a much more informal basis. And I think to your point, Brent, Singapore is, is not an enormous place. And so the proposals to see, um, you know, more of a permanent presence, I, 
I don't know, but I think you, you gesture towards, well, maybe there are other parts of Southeast Asia. And I think one of the places that is not as um, developed in terms of just from a relationship standpoint, that of Indonesia. And I think India has been really smart. As I, you know, I cite in 2018, Modi made an important visit. They signed the Indonesian and Indian government signed a defense security cooperation agreement, which is pretty significant. A lot of their ports are, are completely untapped. We know it's a it's a future country with you know uh, young demographics, significant in natural resources, an important player in the larger region. This might be a place to kind of uh, you know, see or test the waters. At the very least, you know, and you move over and certainly time and space matter, having a base in Darwin, Australia uh, already uh, is pretty significant. It might be a place where, uh, you know, as initially we can test the waters more here with the naval vessels to then, you know, catapult from there. Yeah, I'll just, I, I think those are great comments. I, I, I'm torn on it because um, in some ways, what I really like about uh, kind of the Seventh Fleet as it stands is it has such a wide, um, and it has to then think almost beyond the region, has to think almost globally. Um, and and I guess I guess I'm not sure. I, I think uh, I think that a better resourced Seventh Fleet is a critical need. Okay, so that's either we have a better resourced Seventh Fleet or we have a collectively more resourced Seventh Fleet plus First Fleet, right? And, and figure out the details. Whether or not it's another fleet, I think uh, thinking strategically about where bases could be, including permanent bases, uh, is a really interesting concept. And I, I agree that Indonesia is an opportunity. I would say that if you look at the entire Indochina Peninsula and then extend out to the South Pacific, you have a lot of small island countries and, and, and large archipelagic countries that are very concerned about fisheries enforcement. And that's another area where we could think about a combination of smaller, smaller US Navy vessels, plus maybe some Coast Guard vessels, either offshore patrol vessels or their national security cutters, being able to do fisheries enforcement at the same time as having that, especially the national security cutters, which have a larger crew and just a larger visual presence, that they would give that sort of benefit that you were talking about, Brent, of a, of a port call, not only the vessel itself, but the crew and the interaction and the formalities that come with it. Um, I, I think th there's lots of opportunity there. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, and I don't know the answer to these things, I'm just a commentator uh, who, who wants all the sea services to succeed um, and have more vessels. But basically, whichever path to get more vessels out of Congress for that wide Indo-Pacific region, I'll sign up for that. And I don't know which path is better. No, I appreciate that. I'm going uh, to weigh in a little bit on Vietnam. We've, we haven't really talked about it. Uh, there's some commentary that's coming in some, from some very esteemed uh, colleagues of ours on the chat line. And, and I would be remiss to say that uh, Vietnam does play, I, and I and I and I don't want to speak for both both of my other panelist members, uh, but there's a, it's important to point out that uh, only so far, as long as the regime has a communist party in power, there's a there's a relationship there that goes back to Beijing that always kind of catches things as, as before you get to the final 
the final yard of a major agreement. Uh, though the aircraft carrier visits were remarkable in the recent past, uh, they're still you know, only so far despite the animosities between uh, China and Vietnam. That's not to say that uh, it's it's not a player, it's not a strategic partner. It, it definitely has that, even though it has strategic relationships with Russia, which I think also can be uh, interestingly used uh, to balance out in the three-way competition, the United States, China, and Russia. And that's not to say that those are three points of a triangular fight that are equal. That's by no means the connotation of that. So not, I, I think uh, for the sake of time, We'll move on to uh, probably the next, or the, I'm sorry, we'll go back to our first survey question. Uh, Kevin, if you can call that back up. All right. So this was the same question we had in the beginning. We're just going to repose it and see if there's any delta, a change from earlier, our earlier discussion until now. So where there was a, a balance between the capacity and contesting the gray zone operations after our discussion, the majority it definitely moved into building up interoperability and capacity with our partners. Again, this is, is a theme that's been uh, foundational in national level and certainly geographic combatant commander strategies for upwards of uh, 10 years. So uh, again, I think that reaffirms kind of the cons uh, an opinion that it's shared at, at the highest levels in the US government and the strategies. Uh, there was a few comments I, I definitely want to, and I'll, with the time that we have, I'll let both, uh, both you, Dr. White, and Dr. Gresh, if you have comments on it. And that is the, the Battle Force 2045, or the, we talked, that I mentioned in my opening comments, was just released yesterday. And when you look in that document, there's a couple of things that, 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 are, that are still kind of a, of interest. One is the balance of the force in the immediate future is still going to be on large vessels. But there is a move eventually to have a large number, mostly unmanned, but smaller, larger numbers, getting upwards you look at it out by, by the end of the build plan, up to 688 ships on the high end and upwards about 580 or so on the lower end of the, of when you consider everything all together. Uh, one of the comments on the, pan, on the chat line, which got my attention is that that kind of structure necessarily still kind of fixates Navy on power projection, so strike, launching cruise missiles into another country. Less, less developed or designed for uh, these gray zone competitions, uh, a large ship with a lot of strike capability, even a small ship with a lot of strike capability. What are your views on that type of platform's utility and what kind of, we talked a lot about the smaller vessels, so we don't have to go back into that. But um, at least my impression is that this fleet structure may not necessarily get at that yet. How say you? It's a great point. And furthermore, I mean, it, it gets to my comment about, uh, you know, the South China Sea and why successive in indo pacom commanders have been very much concerned about uh, a2ad and, and larger ships being you know sitting ducks when they enter certain areas um, that are controlled by china and i think you know in looking at, at the report it's very much aspirational which makes good sense but i think i still come around to the fact that you know the debt the dust is yet to settle on on COVID-19 and the pandemic and how you know the financial constraints are coming it's just a matter of when and so thinking creatively and innovatively then maybe it has to be a, a difficult decision about not necessarily having the biggest largest ship 
Um, and that's why I think probably perhaps why, or I know for me, emphasizing more of the kind of interoperability uh, is going to be have to, is going to be so key as opposed to getting the next largest ship, which I, I don't deny. I mean, again, saying that there's real, you know, to your point, Brent, which is a good one and well received. There's there's a significant, you know, when an aircraft carrier uh, rolls into a port, you you feel it, you see it. It's it's a you know an enormous great presence, and this is why you know, China and India and Russia also want aircraft carriers because of this potent national symbol. But I think the reality, you know, is we are going to be financially constrained and having to be very creative and innovative again. Moving forward will be the name of the game. I'll only add, I, I do think that uh, autonomous vehicles do have an interesting uh, element here, especially if they can be produced relatively inexpensively. Uh, though my experience with the ocean operating environment is it's very harsh and it's it, and you have to be um, having some humans there to figure out how to fix things uh, is usually pretty important. So I don't want to be too reliant on it. Um, I do. I don't want. I don't want the Vietnam uh, piece to pass because I do think Vietnam and India, because they both have good relations with Russia, both present an opportunity to. Um, to potentially encourage a little split between, you know, you know, not a full Sino-Soviet or Sino-Russian split, but uh, some kind of uh, split interest there. And and I I find that Vietnam is pretty good among the Southeast Asian countries as having a very credible small state strategy. So they have a very credible submarine force. Uh, they can fight back uh, against any Chinese encroachment. Um, and they want to have more friends. And I'll go back to the point because I do think a an opportunity post-COVID, again, kind of taking the reset button, building on what Jeffrey was talking about with interoperability is just say, we're going to practice interoperability among these, say, 15 allied navies from the North Atlantic and North Pacific. And we're going to sail from the North Pacific through the, you know, around uh, through the Indian Ocean and into the North Atlantic. That's a pretty global statement that says we're working together, we're practicing, um, and we have each other's back across the geography. And that would be a signal that I don't think China's received yet. No, I'm getting some more commentary, but I'm, and I really would like to get out of it. But it's really a, I, I think there's a lot more here to discuss about the partner capacity building. Uh, it is something that, uh, and again, I direct our audience's attention to the Heritage website. If you look me up, uh, you can see all of the writings. There's uh, There will be some that focus more on this security cooperation, and we'll probably have both of you, Dr. Weitz and Dr. Gresh, come on, and maybe we'll dive into this in a part two follow-up on the capacity building. But uh, not even on the chat. I'm getting stuff also from my email. So I'm trying purposely to try and get everything together on this uh, remote kind of platform. Um, but more to follow on that. Uh, I think, sadly, I'm going to have to say that we are at the end of our time. We've gone a little bit over. I'm very sensitive of both of our panelists' uh, time as well as members of the audience that uh, have other uh, business to get on to. Again, I appreciate all of your, your commentary and your thoughts. It will be captured. I've seen it all here and uh, much appreciated. But again, that appears to be all the time that we have today. Uh, I want to thank both my panelists for their time and sharing their expertise insights on this most important topic, one that we'll definitely have to revisit as it is a very big, deep topic, uh, the economic military nexus in this maritime great power competition, to be specific. And 
and what could probably be called naval statecraft approaches. And then thank you for your participation, uh, our audience and Heritage Foundation supporters alike. Uh, you should receive a follow-up email after we conclude today with the recording of, of this conversation. It should be posted on the web at the Heritage Events webpage. With that, I'll turn it back over to Catherine for any final closing comments. And again, thank you very much.